Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of this new book interview podcast done in collaboration with the Asian Review of Books and the New Books Network. In this new podcast, we hope to interview both fiction and nonfiction authors writing in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. As China grows into a major regional and global power, there are many questions about what this means for the international system. Does China threaten the United States? Does Washington want to aggressively contain China? Are we really facing a new Cold War? And what does this mean for everyone else? Our interview today is with Professor Kishore Mabubani, author of Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to Asian to, to American Primacy. One review in the National Interest credited the book with, quote, with injecting, quote, much needed realpolitik back into the U.S.-China relationship and said it, quote, asks painful questions about the state of America. Kishore is a veteran diplomat and academic, currently serving as a distinguished fellow at the National University of Singapore's Asia Research Institute. He is Singapore's former ambassador to the United Nations, former president of the UN Security Council, and former dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at NUS. Today, Kishore and I will discuss how the U.S.-China relationship looks like from someone who doesn't come from either of those two countries, and what might happen as we transition to a more multipolar world. So Kishore, I'd like to start by talking about your background as a senior diplomat from Singapore, a country people may unfairly not think too much about when it comes to international relations. How do you understand Singapore's position and ASEAN's position more broadly when it comes to questions of international relations? Well, Southeast Asia has been the epicenter for many geopolitical contests uh, going back decades. In fact, the biggest war uh, in the Cold War uh, was actually fought in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War, where over 50,000 American soldiers died. And I have absolutely no doubt that as this US China, new U.S.-China geopolitical contest gains momentum, and it will gain momentum in the next 10 years, uh, Southeast Asia will be directly affected by it. And so if you want to have a, a, a good sort of... Uh, uh, ringside seat to see how the U.S.-China geopolitical contest is evolving, come to Southeast Asia, come to Singapore. Well, I think that that's a good point because most of the people that talk about the U.S.-China rivalry, at least in English, tend to be from the United States. And while there's likely a discussion in China, in Chinese, about this same topic, the language that tends to break out into the English-speaking world tends to be, you know, maybe the more aggressive wolf warrior stuff, or at least that's the language that freaks people out. As someone who is neither American nor Chinese, how do you understand this relationship between China and the United States? Well, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, I'm neither American nor Chinese. And actually, frankly, I consider myself a friend of America and a friend of China. And my goal is to try to be as helpful as possible uh, to both countries because what I see unfolding before us is a completely unnecessary tragedy. So, the, so I've written a book called Has China Won? which has a very paradoxical thesis that a major U.S.-China contest, a major U.S.-China geopolitical contest is both inevitable and avoidable. And, and I can explain why it's inevitable, but I also, also emphasize that this is very much avoidable because at the end of the day, 
There are many common interests between United States and China that should prevent an all-out geopolitical contest. So actually, let's so let's investigate that a little bit, and and we'll talk about your thesis that it's inev- that it's inevitable and avoidable in a second. But first, I think I'd like to ask about the the title of your book. Um, has China won? Um, I guess first of all, you know, why phrase the question in this way? Uh, what does it mean to quote unquote win? And what might quote unquote victory look like? Hmm. Well, uh, there's a there's a deliberate reason why I chose the title "Has China Won," because it's very obvious that the biggest mistake that the United States has made in launching this geopolitical contest against China is that it has done so without first working out a strategy. And I got this confirmation from the highest levels because when I was researching this book. I had a one-on-one lunch uh, with Henry Kissinger in New York in March 2018, and he agreed to have me cite him in the book saying that the fundamental U.S. mistake is to launch a contest against China without working out a strategy. And of course, when you try to work out a strategy, the first question you need to ask is, can America lose? And, you know, most Americans, when they go around criticizing China and saying a contest is broken out against China, they never step back and ask the obvious question, can America lose? And, of course, behind the question, has China won, lurks the question, can America lose? And so the goal of my book is to encourage both sides to engage in deeper strategic thinking on what it really means if you if you sort of plunge into a major geopolitical contest without thinking through all about all the consequences that flow from this contest. Right, and 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 I and I want to pick up on something you just said about. I think in the book you say this too that that America's biggest mistake was approaching the China question without a coherent goal or or strategy. Um, I guess I I would like you to delve a bit deeper into that observation. And also to note, did America used to be better about this? Did it used to treat these questions with, with more strategic thought, with, with more of a concrete objective? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you look back at the, the last major geopolitical contest uh, that the United States engaged in uh, with the Soviet Union, the man who formulated the strategy that the U.S. should take towards the Soviet Union was a great strategic thinker called George Kennan. And of course, George Kennan was the man who formulated the containment strategy against the Soviet Union. And people remember him for his containment. But they forget that he also, in addition to advising containment, he gave uh, uh, other very valuable pieces of advice to his fellow Americans. First, he said, that at the end of the day, the outcome of the contest will not be determined by how many bullets or bombs you have. It'll depend on the spiritual vitality of each of the societies. So which society will do better in terms of improving the living standards of its people? So there's no doubt that in the contest between the United States and Soviet Union, the United States was the one which improved the living standards of its people and the Soviet Union didn't do so. But now, in the contest between the United States and China, China has done a much better job of improving the living standards of its people in the last 30 years. In fact, the last 40 years, 
have been the best 40 years in 4,000 years for the Chinese people. And by contrast, United States is the only major developed society where the average income of the bottom 50, 50% has gone down over 30 years. And George Cannon will be appalled to see this and say, this is not how you win a geopolitical contest. And I can quickly mention, he also said you should cultivate friends and allies. The Trump administration hasn't done this. Uh, George Cannon said, don't insult your adversary. The Trump administration has been insulting China. And the final piece of advice George Cannon gave was, be humble. And the Trump administration has not been humble. So if you go back and look what uh, the previous great American strategic thinkers have uh, advised America to do, America has been ignoring the advice of its great strategic thinkers. Do you think that, I guess it, it may be hard to speculate, but what do you think has, has changed in American strategic thought or foreign policy thought to have to have led to this outcome? The, the main strategic mistake that the United States has made, and actually I document this also in another book called Has the West Lost It, I point out that around 1990, we got an unfortunate coincidence uh, of two major events. The first event, of course, was the uh, collapse of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, and that, as a result, made America supremely arrogant an arrogant that was captured in the famous essay, The End of History by Francis Fukuyama. And that essay convinced many Americans that America could just switch on autopilot and go to sleep because America had won. No other challenger can, can take on America. And unfortunately, as I say, the essay by Francis Fukuyama did a lot of brain damage uh, to people in America because they put that to sleep. Uh, when another equally important historical development was happening, which was the waking up of China and India. And it's important to emphasize that the waking up of China and India is very important because from the year 1 to the year 1820, the two largest economies were always those of China uh, and India. So when they woke up, the world will be shaken. And clearly... That's, that's another big strategic mistake that was made by the United States because he wasn't aware that his exceptional domination at the end of the Cold War was an aberration which was going to come to an end. And, and unfortunately, now, they, now that America has woken up 30 years later, it realized that he shouldn't have gone to sleep for 30 years. It's, it's, interesting, you bring, oh, it's interesting you bring up Fukuyama because... Um, I think a few months ago, he had an essay in Foreign Affairs, basically talking about um, how the pandemic has revealed the importance of state capacity and governing capacity, uh, which perhaps those countries that have not done so well in, in combating the COVID-19 pandemic have shown that they have shown that they lack um, a, a pool of countries that unfortunately includes the United States and some other countries in Western Europe. But but, but I want to kind of quickly move on to, to China, because you do talk about China as well in, in, in the book, and you note that China's biggest mistake, whereas, is it, whereas America's mistake, is a, mistake was approaching this question without a coherent strategy, you say that China's largest mistake has been to alienate core groups in the United States that may have supported um, closer relations, engagement, or at least a more... Um, let's say, a, a less aggressive way to talk about China to, to, to push back where they disagree, but to work together on cases where their interests align. 
Well, uh, the, uh, the, in the case of China, the biggest strategic mistake uh, was to alienate the American business community. And, you know, the, for a long time, in fact, in the 90s and early 2000s, whenever any American administration wanted to uh, take any actions against China, the American business community would say, stop, stop, don't do it. China's our biggest market, our biggest growth market. You're going to hurt us. But what's interesting is that the when the Donald Trump finally launches trade war in 2017, 2018, no, no major American business corporation said, stop, stop, you're damaging us. In fact, they kept absolutely silent and, and quietly cheered it on. And it showed how much uh, the Chinese uh, authorities had alienated the American uh, business community. And part of it, as I say in my book, uh, has China won is due to the fact that uh, the Chinese became a bit arrogant uh, after the 2008-2009 global financial crisis when the United States had to come to China to ask for help. Uh, China thought, wow, we are, we are winning. And so that was a mistake they made. But I think they can turn around from the mistake and they're trying to do so. And they're making a ma major effort to begin cultivating again the major American business corporations, and recently they've allowed it major American financial corporations like J.P. Morgan Chase into China. I I do wonder since since you researched or since you did your research for the book and and since publishing it, um, clearly the the rhetoric against China has has increased dramatically, um, or, or rather the people always talk about the the ever deepening tensions between Beijing and Washington, how the relations are low and so on and so on. Um, have you seen any change in how uh, thinkers in the United States, whether the business community or foreign policy thinkers, are, are, are understanding the U.S.-China relationship? Do they think maybe that things have gone too far or they continue to support these actions? What, what are your observations in, say, the, in terms of observations of what U.S. thinkers are thinking about U.S.-China strategy over the past four, five, six months? Uh, well, you're, you're right. Uh, when I wrote the book in uh, the 2018, uh, things were not as bad as they are today. But I guess you can say that I saw it coming <laughs> when I produced this book because I knew that a major geopolitical contest uh, had broken out within U.S. and China. And I think my big disappointment with a lot of American strategic thinkers is that they've been reluctant to raise uh, fundamental questions about what does it mean to begin this contest uh, with, with China. So, for example, if George Kennan were alive today, the first point he would make is that our first priority should be to take care of our own people. We cannot have a situation where the average income of the bottom 50% has been going down and then you're spending all this money fighting unnecessary wars. So, for example, the United States since 9-11 has uh, spent $5 trillion uh, in fighting uh, unnecessary wars in the Middle East and uh, North Africa. So if the United States instead had taken the $5 trillion and given it to the bottom 50% of America's population, each citizen in the bottom 50% would receive a check for $30,000. And that's an amazing sum of money because in my book, I gave a statistic 
that 60% of Americans don't have access to $500 in emergency cash. So George Cannon, if he were alive today, say, let's fix our own society first before we launch a contest against China. And if you're going to fix your own society first, then why not work with China temporarily to, to get our economy growing? And certainly after COVID-19 broke, uh, broke out, the logical thing for the United States to have done should have been to press the pause button on the geopolitical contest against China. Because in one of the oldest rules of geopolitics is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And since COVID-19 is an enemy of the United States, COVID-19 is an enemy of China, they should have temporarily pressed the pause button on the geopolitical contest and come together to defeat COVID-19. But this, the fact that they couldn't do so showed the absence of strategic thinking in the United States. That's right. I think, I think people have, have noted that, in fact, uh, the U.S. and China have actually had a lot of deep cooperation on issues of public health. Um, but a lot of these contacts diminished under the Trump administration and, and were never replaced, which, of course, now lead to a lot of the, the lack of early information about the COVID-19 pandemic when it emerged in China. Um, but uh, I, I'd like to maybe return to something you said earlier, where you said the thesis of the book was that a, a superpower rivalry between China and the United States what is inevitable but also avoidable. Um, I guess I would like to ask you, ask you to, to clarify what you mean by that. Well, when I say inevitable, uh, I want to emphasize that this U.S.-China geopolitical contest is not being driven by personalities. So, for example, if Trump loses the election and Joe Biden wins, the geopolitical contest will continue because it's driven by at least three structural forces. The first structural force is the fact that for over 2,000 years, uh, whenever the world's number one power, which today is uh, United States, sees the world's number one emerging power, which today is China, about to overtake the United States, the natural impulse for the number one power is to push down the number two power, which is China. So that's as Graham Allison recorded in his book, uh, Destined for War. That happens all the time. But the second structural force is one that nobody talks about, which is the fear of the yellow peril in the Western psyche. And if you look at how emotional the US-China geopolitical contest has become, is being driven by the fear of the yellow peril, which is why uh, people in the Trump administration call COVID-19 not COVID-19. They call it the China virus, the Wuhan virus, the Kung flu therefore playing off these images of the yellow peril in their statements. And the third structural force that's driving this contest is a kind of a deep disappointment in the American body politic that after years of engaging China, Americans believe that after China opened up economically, it would then open up politically. And that hasn't happened. And that's why there's a deep disappointment among many Americans. And therefore, they feel that China has let them down. And, and of course, when future historians look at this expectation, they'll be very puzzled. They'll say, how come a, a, a country like United States, which is barely 250 years old, with one quarter of the population, how could United States believe that it could transform China, which has four times the population and uh, 4,000 years of history? <laughs> so it's a very bizarre expectation 
uh, on the part of the Americans about China. And But anyway, this explains why there's a bipartisan consensus in the United States against China, and therefore you will see uh, the geopolitical contest gain momentum even after Trump, even if Trump loses the election. Um, I, I have one more question about the U.S. and China, and then I'd like to talk about the, the rest of the world. Um, in the book, you actually are quite flattering about um, diplomats in the U.S. State Department, um, you know, saying that they're that they're professional, they know what they're talking about, they know their stuff. Um, you 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 quote the discussion about the WikiLeaks cables, mm. where people looked at those cables and said, "Wow, the diplomats actually have pretty good insights about where they're based." Um, I was wondering. I guess, first of all, um, both your insights about working with American diplomats, but also your insights about working with Chinese diplomats. And, and do they, I, I guess, obviously, as China engages more of the world, do you see them having, um, showing the same level, depth of insight, professionalism that, that you've seen amongst um, Western diplomats? Uh, I'm sure the answer is probably yes, yes. but I wanted to hear, hear your personal experiences. Yeah, well, I've been very fortunate. And as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I serve as ambassador to the UN. In fact, I serve as ambassador to the UN twice. And that's a real privilege because most countries send their best ambassadors uh, to uh, work in the UN. So the United States send uh, General Vernon Walters, uh, Gene Kirkpatrick, uh, Richard Holbrook, John Negroponte. And I worked very well with uh, all four of them, and they were uh, friends of mine. Uh, similarly, the uh, China also sent uh, very good ambassadors uh, to the UN, uh, Wang Yingfan, Wang Guangya, and I got to know them uh, also. So the quality of uh, uh, American and Chinese diplomats that I have worked with have been very good. But unfortunately, the morale of the State Department has been going down and down and down because, you know, all the top positions are, are being taken up, not by career uh, uh, diplomats in the U.S. State Department, but by those who pay money uh, for political donations. And by contrast, in China... Uh, the quality of diplomats is getting better and better because many of them have been trained and educated uh, overseas, speak many languages. And so the, the quality of American diplomats, I would say, are as good as Chinese diplomats, but the morale of the State Department is not as good as the morale of the Chinese Foreign Ministry. So I'd like to, to pivot to, to, to talk about the, the rest of the world. Um, First of all, it seems like at least in the short term, and I know that there are many reasons for this, but the end result of the of the U.S.-China rivalry appears to be a degradation in the reputation of both countries. I think approval ratings of both the United States and of China have been dropping, certainly since the since the pandemic began, but probably extends a bit before that as well. Um, do you have any thoughts as to why this might be? I think there's a combination of uh, factors. Uh, in the case of the United States, I mean, I'm just going to state something very obvious. Uh, when the, the United States has always stood for making the world great again. United States said that our mission is not just to take care of America. Our mission is to build a better world. So now you have a president, Donald Trump, who says his sole mission is to make America great again, not to make the world great again. 
And as a consequence, basically, many people in the rest of the world are disappointed because they had got used to a more generous uh, America in these dealings with the world. And this can understand, so you can understand why the standing of the United States has gone down during the time of the Trump administration. But in the case of China, I think the world is gradually coming to realize that a country that used to be very sort of relatively weak in the global system and in purchasing power parity terms, uh, its uh, GNP was one-tenth the size of the United States in 1980. But by 2014, six years ago, it had become bigger than the United States. So, you know, when, when, you, when you are in a small room and you're sharing it with a cat and you're happy that a cat is there, and then after 30 years, the cat becomes a tiger. And then you say, oh my God, I'm now sharing a room with a tiger, not a cat. And this is the new reality we have to deal with because China has become so enormous and so powerful so it's going to become a bigger challenge to deal with China. So naturally, the concerns about China have grown. So the result of China's rise, at least in the short term or short to medium term, is likely going to be a, a multipolar world. You know, it's not going to be that China replaces the United States as global superpower, but that there will be multiple powers, maybe the U.S. and China and then other countries operating together as as major powers. What might this multipolar world look like? Would the world remain largely integrated or will we have multiple competing systems? Uh, uh, I'm glad you used the word multipolar <laughs> because I think that's the, the best news for the world is that it will not be a bipolar world between US and China. It will be a multipolar world and it will besides the United States and China the European Union, India, Japan, Russia, and I think to some extent the African continent will play a bigger role in global affairs. So that actually a multipolar world will be more stable than the unipolar world we had for 30 years or so after the end of the Cold War. And it will certainly be better than a bipolar world with countries uh, rushing to take sides either in favor of U.S. or in favor of China. And as I say, in, as you know, in one chapter uh, in my book, I, I, do, I, I entitled it, How Will Other Countries Choose? I make the case that most countries in the world, including the traditional allies of the United States, like Europe, are not rushing to join uh, United States in this geopolitical contest against China because for many of them, their economic links with China are as important, if not more important, than the ones that they have with the United States. It's interesting that that you note the um, the importance, I guess, of, of freedom of action for these countries that aren't one of the of the major poles. Um, and I guess I'd like you to explain a bit further. How might you see countries that aren't one of the major powers, be it the U.S., China, the EU, Russia, India? How do you see those countries operating in a more multipolar world? Will they have less room to maneuver or might they, in fact, have more room to maneuver? Well, the, that's a very good question. And whether or not you will have less room to maneuver or more room to maneuver will depend on the degree of uh, your geopolitical competence that you have. And I think if countries are smart, 
they would try to maintain good relations with the United States, but also maintain good relations with China. So, for example, when you look at a critical country like Australia, and I'm a friend of Australia, it's a bit sad that Australia has managed to have maintained good relations with the Trump administration, but has damaged its relations with China. Now, of course, you can say, oh, it's all China's fault, they could have, you know, and so on and so forth. By the end of the day, in diplomacy, you're judged by results. And at the end of the day, it's a bit unwise for Australia to have locked itself into a position where it has no options. So similarly, I think you'll find uh, other countries, while they may lean a little bit in one way or another, they will try their best to maintain good ties with both uh, uh, United States uh, and, and, and China. And I was just reading uh, a book by the Indian Foreign Minister, Jay Shankar, where he says, uh, on the one hand, India has joined Quad to show its closeness with the uh, United States, Japan, and Australia. But on the other hand, India, China, India is also a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and who's working closely with China and Russia. So that, that, that's, that's the best thing to do to keep your options open as much as possible. Okay, I think I have one more question. Um, and this would be relevant to maybe those who aren't um, diplomats or policymakers. So clearly the topic of the U.S.-China relationship is a topic of major concern, not just in the U.S. and China, but I think for many countries all over the world. If you were advising an ordinary person living in an Asian country, perhaps in Southeast Asia, perhaps in Singapore, how would you suggest they look at foreign policy concerning their country's relationship with America and with China? What are the things that they should look for and what are the questions they should ask? Well, I think they should be aware that uh, what's happening between the United States and China is going to affect their daily lives. So, I mean, for example, uh, a, a, a specific example, when countries are choosing telecommunication systems, if they are looking for the cheapest and the best 5G system, they might want to pick Huawei uh, from China. But if they pick Huawei from China, the United States will come knocking on the door and saying, why are you choosing a Chinese telecommunication system? So I think it's important for uh, a lay person and certainly a businessman or businesswoman, they must understand this uh, geopolitical contest that is happening between U.S. and China. And that's why I wrote my book, As China Won, because then they will also understand why their own personal lives will be disrupted uh, as this contest uh, gains uh, momentum uh, in the coming decades. So they cannot, they cannot sit back and say, oh, this is a show that is happening on stage, it's not going to involve me. Actually, everybody else, including all of us, are on the stage together with the United States and China. And I think that's a great place to end. Uh, this was an interview with Kishore Mabubani, author of Has China Won? The Chinese Challenge to American Primacy. Uh, Kishore, where can people find your work? And is there anything you're working on that, that you'd like to uh, plug now to, to our listeners? Well, I think the best uh, place to get my writings is to go to my website, which is www.mamwani.net. And uh, I've been writing about the rise of Asia from my first book, Can Asians Think, uh, in 1998. 
uh, and also most of them are available uh, uh, on Amazon.com. But at the same time, I'm also going to produce a MOOC course on U.S.-China relations, and I've also launched something called the Asian Peace Program, APP, to try and ensure that the U.S.-China geopolitical contest does not result in greater conflicts in our region. And you can find out about the Asian Peace Program just by Googling it and going to the website of the Asia Research Institute of the National University of Singapore. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia. That's reviews with a plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. Thank you again so much, Kishore, for taking the time to talk with me today. My pleasure.